Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. This morning's scripture comes from the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, first 11 verses. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Word of God for the people of God. Five years and one day ago, I stood behind this pulpit as your senior pastor for the first time. The sermon that day was called A Church of the Broken Beloved, and the text was Luke's version of the same reading we read today. It's saved in my files on my desktop as GBC Sermon Number One. A colleague of mine strongly encouraged me to keep track of the number of sermons as I was preaching them as a way to mark the journey, a weekly reminder of where we've been, and a weekly reminder of all the work that goes into that journey. Today's sermon has a similar title, but it will go in the files as sermon number 210, which means that if we were to sum up the amount of time that we have spent together in the preaching moment, it would be approximately 210 sermons, not counting, you know, funerals and weddings and such, about 400,041 words, nearly 4,200 minutes. And I think it's pretty remarkable that you all have listened to every single one of those words without ever nodding off or letting yourself slip into a daydream or chase a rabbit or whatever. It is truly remarkable. More seriously, though, I do believe it is important to recognize the anniversaries of significant moments and experiences in our lives and to celebrate them together. In five years, we have weathered significant storms. We have said goodbye to friends who've moved away. We've grieved the loss of loved ones. We have welcomed new members. We survived a global pandemic. 
We learned how to worship at home when we could not gather. We created an online community where people can worship, study the Bible, engage in topical studies, and participate in church business meetings even when they can't make it to the building itself. We have embraced difficult conversations with courage and humility, knowing that avoidance is no longer an option. And this is not an exhaustive list. Rather, it's just a start. It is a prompt to get us thinking and remembering what has been made possible because of God's presence with us. It's good to give ourselves a moment to recognize where we have been, isn't it? To think about and give thanks for all that we have done and for who we are becoming together with God. And so this day is not about a preacher or a sermon. This day is about celebrating the gifts that God is lavishing upon us as we journey together in faith. One of my favorite things about this particular anniversary that we share at the beginning of every new year is that it often falls on what our Christian tradition calls Baptism of Our Lord Sunday which means it's the day that we remember and read the stories of Jesus' baptism and consider their meaning for our lives. And there are three baptismal stories in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all like to add their little bits of flair to the same basic story. And while five years ago we read from Luke's gospel and the years in between we've kind of hopped around, today we settle ourselves in Mark's version of the story. And conveniently for us, it is this story where Mark decides to begin his gospel. For Mark, everything starts in the water. Beginnings are important, you see, because while we may like to gloss over them in our rush to get to the action of the narrative, the beginnings of the stories tell us something of where the author is going, if we're, pay attention, if we're paying attention, we might see it. Matthew begins with a Jewish genealogy, letting us know that the family and cultural context of Jesus' line is going to matter throughout the narrative. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Tamar, and Ruth. He's the child of the Israelite kings, David, Solomon, and Uzziah. He will share a lineage with the prophet Amos, All of this is important to remember and include in the story according to Matthew because Jesus will be the perfect combination of them all, the culmination of God's work in and through the people of Israel. Luke's gospel takes another approach, establishing himself as the Hellenistic historiographer prefacing his account by naming his benefactor and his purpose, which Luke explicitly states is to write an orderly account so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Mark, ever the minimalist, states his objective without all that fanfare and explanation, straight to the point, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he quotes Isaiah and whisks us away to the very edge of the civilized world, the wilderness, where a peculiar messenger by the name of John is baptizing. 
It is there on the margin that it all begins for Mark. There, outside of the social order, independent of the religious establishment, far beyond the scope of the political powers that reign, there on the margin, just beyond the reach of any societal claims, in the waters of wilderness, that is where the good news of Jesus Christ begins. This is not the first time that God's innovation happens out there in the wild. Do you remember the first words of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, which say, in the beginning, God created? Well, the Greek word that Mark uses in his beginning, arche, echoes the dawn of all creation, the moment when God took chaos and wilderness and disorder and transformed it into beauty and goodness and blessing. I wonder if a similar transformation is happening here in the baptismal story. Is Mark trying to say that the beginning of the gospel is the dawning of a new reality, a new world order, one that is inseparable from the person, Jesus Christ? With our minds still full of wonder, Jesus enters the story for the first time. We may be still trying to understand what God is doing here in the beginning of this good news, but Mark is not waiting. Mark is moving along at a rapid pace. Here comes Jesus, and his arrival is not announced by an impressive list of relatives, as in Matthew. It is not the culmination of a long, miraculous birth narrative, as it is in Luke. But here, Jesus enters the story in a nonchalant and regular way on the heels of a crowd that came to be baptized. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. That's it. That's all we get from Mark. But then when Jesus comes up from the water, something important happens. He receives a vision from the heavens, of the heavens themselves opening up and the spirit descending. Jesus hears a voice that says, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. From there, Jesus exits the narrative scene as quickly as he entered it. And even though the story is relatively short here in Mark's gospel and offers only a few small details, it has captivated the theological imagination and firmly cemented the practice of baptism into every Christian denomination and ritual practice in our faith. Now, we may not agree on how and when baptism should happen, but we all agree that it should. Even though the story is short and Jesus' presence in it is captured only by a few sentences, the story, this baptismal story, is where the whole gospel begins. For Mark, the good news is rooted in baptism. And it seems that, at least if our tradition has anything to say about it, Mark was on to something. From the earliest days of the Jesus movement, baptism was a critical point of entry. The baptism that Jesus sought out was the one offered by John, the prophet, who called the people to repent of their sins, to change, to turn around, 
Isn't it interesting that Jesus wanted that baptism? Maybe Mark's giving us another clue. In the first century, Paul often quoted baptismal liturgies when he wrote letters to the churches. That gave us another window into the role of baptism in the early Jesus movements. Paul regularly reminds the people to return to their baptisms as a reminder of their covenant with God, a reminder of how they will go about their mission together. Hear these words from Galatians. As many of you were, as were baptized into Christ, have, you have clothed yourselves in Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Greek, no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. A beautiful baptismal liturgy. And from Colossians, in that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And from 1 Corinthians, for just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. These words are a powerful reminder of the covenant that came with the water. When the people in the ancient world entered the waters of baptism, they were transformed by the Spirit of God. In that baptismal transformation, all the markings of the most contentious and divisive issues of the day, those worldly labels of Greek and Jew, slave and free, male and female in baptism, they all went away. Those earthly classifications of race, class, and gender, they no matter mattered because they were all traded in for a new name a new identity, beloved. Though many years have passed, the baptismal covenant remains unchanged. When we enter the waters of baptism, we too are transformed by the Spirit of God. That baptismal transformation means that our own worldly markers of race and class and gender no longer hold their power. Because in baptism, we trade in all of that for a new name and a new identity. Beloved. This can be an empowering experience for those who tend to find themselves already placed on the margins where the baptismal waters await. There are so many for whom those tired categories of race and class and gender have been used for tools for oppression and exclusion and judgment and the opportunity to release those things in exchange for belonging, in exchange for a name like beloved, is a gift of grace and it is an experience of liberation. But there are also those of us for whom the release of such titles can feel like a demotion of sorts. 
Those of us who are privileged to find ourselves receiving the advantages of race and class and gender or some combination thereof, we enter into the baptismal waters with a little hesitation sometimes. Because we know that when we relinquish these worldly gifts and their power in our lives, we are giving up pieces of ourselves that have served us well, that have helped us advance, that have enabled some of our success, and which have ensured that we remain safely in the center of society instead of on the margins. Baptism is promising, but it comes with a cost. To wrap up things and underscore the point a little bit, I want to share an old story that preachers love to use on Baptism Sunday. Maybe it's one that you've heard before, but I know that y'all don't sleep during sermons, so listen in. A man who was about to be baptized by immersion was on his way into the pool when he realized that in his back pocket was his wallet. He stopped and was about to remove it when the preacher said, Stop! Either I baptize you and your wallet, or I do not baptize you at all. Now, the preacher wasn't interested in the water physically washing the man's money. I mean, we know that money is pretty dirty, right? The preacher wasn't interested in washing the credit cards and the identification that lived in that wallet. The preacher was not concerned to make sure that the fine leather which held it all together wouldn't be ruined. No, the preacher was making a point to say, if you are serious about following Jesus, if you're serious about following Jesus, even into the waters of baptism, then you have to do it with all that you are. You have to do it all the way. You have to do it with everything that you have, your whole self, all that you are. The truth is, whether it is our wallets or our privilege, whether it is our comfortable positions or our comfort with the status quo, following Jesus anywhere, especially into the waters of baptism, always means we have to change. It always requires us to give something up, always requires a realignment, a reorganization of our priorities and our allegiances because baptism is always about repentance about turning around, about leaving behind the pieces of ourselves that wed us to the world, even when we say that we are wed to Christ. For this reason, I think it is important that we remember our baptism. Because I don't know about you, but I could really use that reminder sometimes. I could really use that reminder that when I entered the waters 32 years ago, I brought everything with me. There was nobody standing on the side to take my wallet and set it aside. Nobody offered to hold on to my pride or my ambition or my ego so that they wouldn't get splashed in the water. Nobody offered to take a certain relationship or two and keep them safely protected from the baptismal pool. Nobody offered to hold on to my insecurities and my fears and my disbelief so that I could pick it all back up when I ascended the steps on the 
the other side. No, everything was dunked and drenched and drained out through the pipes of that baptismal font when I said, Jesus Christ is Lord. And then I was given a new name, Beloved. Sometimes I need that reminder because sometimes I forget all that. And baptism is just a thing I did 32 years ago. And sometimes I forget those things and I go looking for all that stuff that I said goodbye to years ago when I took on the new name. Surely I'm not the only one. Maybe you struggle with that too. Maybe you need a reminder. Maybe we all need a reminder every year at the beginning of the year. And if so, there's some good news. Today's baptism of our Lord Sunday. It's a liturgical day and it rolls around every year about this time. And I believe the reason is as we all embark on some new beginnings in this year of 2024, we would do well to remember our new names. And it would be a good thing if we remembered what we let go of in order to take on that new name. We are beloved, not because of anything we did, but because of everything that God does in the center, on the margins, in the waters, and everywhere in between. So perhaps as we stand on the brink of another anniversary, as we begin to dream together and wonder about what this next year might hold, perhaps we could start right where the good news begins and root ourselves in the cost and the promise of the water. Amen.